Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father and gracious God, we bow in your presence and we ask that the Holy Spirit of God would open the word of God to all the people of God. Speak, Lord, for your servants seek to hear. In Jesus' precious name, amen. amen. So what in the world are we going to do with the person and ministry of John the Baptist? What are we going to do with the person and the ministry of John the Baptist? He rises like a meteor or a comet into the center of human history. He's on the front page of the Jerusalem Post. He's on the top stories for just a little while of the main nightly Jerusalem news. And then he's gone. Right in the center of history for just a very brief moment, then he's gone. He's the ultimate illustration of what Andy Warhol called our 15 minutes of fame. And he's so unusual. Did you catch the end of the gospel reading for this morning? What sort of child will this be? And when he comes into the center of history, he's wearing a garment of camel's hair and a leather girdle around his waist. He's eating a diet of locusts and wild honey. And he's preaching a shocking message which reverberates like an earthquake around the community. He's an awesome preacher. Mark chapter 1 verse 5 says, listen to this, and all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John and being baptized him in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Would be quite something if we had a speaker and the paper said, and all of Charleston and Berkeley County and Dorchester County went out to him. Must be very, very good. Must be very, very important. And just so we're all together so that I can sharpen this to its sharpest point, think of what Jesus said for a second about John the Baptist. You already know this, but let me just remind you. Matthew 11, verse 11. This is an amazing statement from our Lord. No one born of woman is greater than he. Now, before we proceed, let me sharpen this even further. I had a warden in the parish in which we served when we first got out of seminary way back in the late mid-80s, which feels like when dinosaurs roamed the earth now. And he loved Advent and hated John the Baptist. Every year he would come to me and say, I just can't stand this. I really want you not to talk about John the Baptist. He's so annoying. He's such a Debbie Downer. He's so harsh. He's so strong. I thought Christianity was good news. I want to talk about the joy of Christmas. And the thing is, I said to him, I said, Tom, now look, here's the thing. The rector didn't design the lectionary. I didn't design the lectionary. In the wisdom of the church, every year in Advent, you do know this, right? You, you are confronted with the figure of John the Baptist. You actually have no choice. You can't go over him or around him or under him. You, you have to go through him. So I said essentially to Tom, don't get mad at me, get mad at the church, but also, can I remind you, it's actually the order of the story, right? You get John the Baptist first before you get Jesus, and John the Baptist is actually essential to the coming of Jesus, right? You don't see the foundation of the house, but everybody knows that the foundation of the house, even though it's not seen, is very, very important to the health of the house, and it comes first. It's that on which the whole thing is built, 
So here comes John the Baptist. And he says, not Dale Carnegie this, not how to win friends and influence people this. And I quote Luke 3, verse 7, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So what are we going to do with this strange, unusual, and yet absolutely pivotal figure who confronts us every year? Well, thanks for raising the question. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to go around it or under it or over it. I'm going to go through it. And let me make two observations for your thoughts this morning about John. First, in order to understand John and his importance, you have to understand why he is the way that he is, why he says what he says. You need to understand what drives him, his motivation. And then secondly, you need to understand what it is that he says. So first of all, why it is that he says what he says, and then what it is that he says. Everybody with me so far? All right, so just a word for a moment about the why. This is absolutely critical to understanding this man. It says when he shows up that he comes out of the wilderness. Luke chapter 3, verse 2. John, the son of Zechariah, was in the wilderness, and the word of God came to John in the wilderness. And and when he came, he came out of the wilderness. Which means what? It means this, brothers and sisters. It means there are seasons in life. There are rhythms in life. And John, you already know he's incredibly significant. Look at the disturbance in his parents before he even showed up. If John is an earthquake, look at the tremor in the lives of his parents before he even showed up. His dad goes mute for nine months. His mom is old and can't get pregnant and is so overcome with the blessing of her pregnancy that she withdraws from public view for five months because she's so overwhelmed with the reality that she actually can have that which she thought she could never have. And all that is just preparation for the preparer. And when the preparer prepares, what does he get from the Lord when he's out there in the wilderness? Well, he's reading the Old Testament scriptures. He's reading the scriptures that he learned from Zechariah and Elizabeth in the Old Testament. And what he comes to, we know this from the scriptures that he quotes, is this. He comes with an acute awareness of the fact that the God who's promised in the Old Testament, the great and terrible God, the God who made the heavens and the earth by the power of his outstretched hand, that this God is actually coming into history in John's time. If you want one scripture to understand this man, it's Isaiah 40. Go up, it says, onto a high mountain and say to the people, Behold your God. That's John in three words. He is overridden by the conviction that God is really going to show up in history, that the author of the story is really going to come into the story. Now just think for a second before we get to the character of God. You already know this. The more important the person who's coming to visit, the more you prepare, right? You all know this. My mother seemed to become a different person when her parents visited when I was growing up. I didn't recognize her, right? I I saw some of you flinch even now when I mentioned parents coming to visit. We all know how this works, right? So if you get a call and the governor's coming to your house, you just don't stay in neutral, right? If, if the, if the a senator's coming or the president's coming, that's a big deal for the sake of the office, no matter what your party. And what if you're in England and you get a call and the queen's coming? Oh my gosh! 
They've got a sense of monarchy and royalty. But this isn't the queen. This isn't the governor. This isn't your parents. This is way, 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 way more important than that. What if God was coming to visit? How would you behave? That's what motivates John. And it's not just that God is coming, but the nature of the God who is coming. And John is overpowered, overwhelmed with a sense of the greatness and the majesty and the glory and the holiness of the God who comes. One of the ways you can think of it is this. I love this image of John. He says about our Lord, he says, after me is one coming before me, the thong of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So great is the one who's coming after me, that is to say, our Lord Jesus Christ, God incarnate. So great is the Lamb of God. John says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So great is he that I'm not even worthy to begin to begin to stoop down and, and tie the the, the sandals on his feet and touch the sandals on his feet. And you know, back in that culture, they didn't wear shoes and the, and the feet were the dirtiest part of the body, which is why in John 13, Peter recoils when Jesus says, let me wash your feet. No, 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 not that part of me. It's just too dirty. And John says, he's so great, I'm not worthy to even begin to begin to stoop down and untie the, the, the thong of his sandals. So great is he. Do we know the greatness of God? You go through the scriptures with the greatness of God as your category, and you get a litany of awesome scriptures. I could bury you this morning. I won't, but let me just quote a few. There is none like you, O Lord. You are great, and great is your name. For great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, he is to be feared above all gods. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head above all. Again and again, when you look at the Psalms, which are the prayer book of Jesus, what Alleluia is all about is to try to give God the praise that he's due because he's so awesome, he's so great, he's so majestic, he's so glorious, and John has this God in his mind and says, this God is coming, you've got to prepare. My professor, J.I. Packer, in Vancouver, wrote a book called Knowing God, and he has a wonderful section of his book, Knowing God, on the greatness of God. And he says, if you want to understand the greatness of God, you've got to do two things as a mental exercise if you're really going to get at it. The first is you've got to think about all of the limitations that you know of yourself as a human being, and then you've got to own the limitations and you've got to take them away and say, God doesn't have those limitations. So, for example, Psalm 139 is all about the fact that, this is a newsflash in case you didn't know it, you can only be at one place in one time. You do know that, right? So, and the psalmist says, whither can I go from your presence? There's, I can't go down to Sheol. I can't, there, I, can, I can't go. It doesn't matter where I try to go in the world. God's always there. So God is not limited by space. God is not limited by time. And on and on and on it could go. That's, that's the first move. Remove all the limitations and realize God is greater. And then, it's, then Dr. Packer says, if you look at Isaiah 40 and the way that the Bible does it, take all the things that you know are great. The greatest thing that you can imagine, the greatest mountain, the greatest city, the greatest army, and take them and go up and realize God is greater than that. So take away the limitations and realize God doesn't have them, and then look at the things that are great and realize God is way, way more. And I just want to pause and say this to you before I keep going this morning. You have an advantage over the readers of Scripture in this time 
and the readers of scripture in the Old Testament, and it's this. You and I know from modern science far more than they do about this point that Dr. Packer is making. We actually have more resources at our disposal to understand the greatness of God than those on whose shoulders we now stand. Why? Because you and I know something about what one person calls the vast reaches of interstellar space. You can just go and go and go. You go on the NASA website, you look at the, the space lab. It's, it's unbelievable how much stuff is out there in space. And it just goes and goes and goes. Billions and billions of years. What does a light year even mean? We used to think the sun was way far away. And now we're looking at what seems like universes beyond universes beyond universes. And what you have to realize, brothers and sisters, is we know a whole lot about the size of the universe. It's really, really big. And God is bigger. Not done. There's another facet of modern science, which is we actually know about the small stuff. We actually know not just that God goes way, way up and is bigger, but we actually know more about the reality of the small stuff. So there's this thing called CERN, which is another story for another time, and it's in Switzerland, and it's where these, these scientists have these great big super colliders, which are these great big huge mechanisms, and they take electrons, which used to be what you and I, when we were growing up, at least some of us, uh, were the smallest things that we knew. Atoms used to be the, the smallest, and then there's electrons, and you take these electrons at super high speeds, and you bash them into each other, and you get things like quarks and neutrinos, which are even smaller than that, which we never knew existed. And there's a level of reality way down there. And God goes all the way down further than that, and God goes all the way up further than that. And when John says, behold your God, when John says, God's showing up in history. When John says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, the Lord who is coming is that great. And you're not going to understand God, and you're not going to understand John, unless you understand that. You all with me? So he's driven by the reality of God, the greatness of God, and the absolute conviction that in his time, God's really going to show up. Point number one. Point number two is what he says. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. It's there in the collect for today, right? The reason why John the Baptist is there every year in Advent is because when Jesus starts his ministry, he says, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And before Jesus starts his ministry, John says, repent. That's his entire message in one word. God is coming now. He's real. He's great. Repent. That's John in a sentence. Now, let's think about this repentance for just a moment. First of all, let's get on the table the biblical definition of repentance, okay? So repentance in the Bible has three parts, all right? So stay with me. The first thing that's necessary if you're going to actually repent the way the Bible intends for us to repent is you need to be sorry for what you've done, okay? So a feeling of sorrow for what you've actually done. That's point number one. Point number two is then you have to, in the present, looking back and feeling sad, then in the present, you have to turn around and say, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to turn around. I want to do something different, okay? In which case, you've done two of the three things that are necessary for repentance. 
Now, just stay with me. Supposing, let's just say hypothetically, you get off 526 and you get on 26 and you actually intended to go to Columbia and uh, you were not paying attention, you were in a conversation, you were looking at your phone, whatever the reason, all of a sudden you find to your horror that you're going to Charleston. You don't want to be going to Charleston, you want to be going to Columbia. Okay, so here's the first thing. You're in your car and you're heading to Charleston and you feel sad, okay? Here's, here's, the, here's the problem. Here's the problem. The problem is if you're in your car and you're going to Charleston and you feel sad, you're still in your car going to Charleston. Okay, so what happens? You say, I don't want to be going to Charleston. I feel sad. I don't want to do that anymore. You get off the interstate and you go to the interchange. Okay, now you feel sad about the fact that you're going to Charleston and you're off the interchange. You're still not going to Columbia. Right? The third thing that's necessary is you have to resolve to go a new direction in the future. John says, bear fruits that befit repentance. You have to resolve to go a different direction. You actually have to get off the interchange and go north to Columbia. You need to do all three in order to genuinely repent. And John is absolutely convinced that he's speaking to spiritual adulterers. You do know that's what sin is, right? Spiritual adultery. And he's, he knows that the God who's coming is holy and he will brook no sin in his life. In one of the contemporary Christian hymns, it's worded this way. In him, there is no darkness at all. Right? So there can be no sin. There can be no darkness. So John says, God's coming. God does not want sin. God does not want fellowship with spiritual adulterers. Turn your lives around and meet God. Not just feel sorry, not just turn around in the present, but resolve to bear fruit that fits, repent, fits repentance and go a different direction in the future. You all with me? All right, now let me, let me just unpack this very precisely in two directions. Let me make clear what we're not talking about, and then let me, let me make clear what we are talking about. Let me say a word about the gangster Mickey Cohen. I don't know how much you know about the gangster Mickey Cohen. He's another story for another time one of the real notorious members of the mafia in the 20th century, born in 1913. What you may not know is that um, one of his associates was at a Billy Graham crusade in 1949, was very taken with what Dr. Graham was preaching, and eventually came back and came back and actually became converted. This particular member of uh, Cohen's entourage was actually working at the same time for the Los Angeles Police Department as a double informant. And he was a good friend of Mickey Cohen's, and he was so overwhelmed with Graham's message that he said to Graham privately after one of his Los Angeles crusades, he said, I, I think I can get you to meet with Mickey Cohen. I think he'd like to hear what you have to say. So there was actually a meeting in 1949 between Billy Graham and Mickey Cohen. Fascinating stuff, this. They had what is purported to be about a five-hour conversation. Here's Cohen's description of the meeting. I love this. I'm very high on the Christian way of life. Billy came up, and before we had food, he said, what do you call it? That thing they say before food? Grace. Yeah, grace. And we talked a lot about Christianity and stuff. Graham tried to get him to be converted. He prayed for him. He prayed the prayer of salvation. He wasn't converted. A little bit later, one of his friends shared the gospel with him, Mickey Cohen, and he purported to be converted this great notorious gangster. Well, some of his other friends were Christians, and they noticed to their surprise, and I bet not to your surprise, that Mickey Cohen, the great gangster, who purportedly became a Christian, was the same Mickey Cohen after that he was before. And so being good Christians and knowing him pretty well, they came up to him, they challenged him, and they said, now look, you said you're a Christian. You listened to Billy Graham, you talked to him for five hours, we heard you were a Christian, but we noticed you're not changing. 
Why not? You can book this as one of the all-time great responses. Christian football players, said Cohen. Christian cowboys, Christian politicians. Why not a Christian gangster? (laughs) That is not repentance. (laughs) That's not what John's talking about. Dietrich Bonhoeffer calls it cheap grace. Listen to this. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without contrition. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. You see what he's saying? He's saying, if you want Jesus on the cross, you don't just get the cross to get into the kingdom. You get into the kingdom through the cross, and you live by the cross all through the kingdom. It's repentance and faith, and it is a life of faith which is based in the cross every single day. It's absolutely free, and it's unbelievably expensive. Okay, so that's what it isn't. Here's what it is. I'm a big fan of... Hobbes and Calvin cartoons. I said it backwards. Calvin and Hobbes cartoons. One of my all-time favorites is super simple, and it's on this topic. You can look it up. He put it out there in 1987. First slide. You all with me? It's Calvin. He says this. I quote, I feel bad. I called Susie names, and I hurt her. That's first slide, right? The two of them sitting there, and Calvin says this. And the second slide, Calvin also, again, I'm sorry I did it. Third slide. Hobbes, back to Calvin, as Calvin's kind of thinking about this. Hobbes says this, maybe you should apologize to her. Fourth slide, Calvin ponders and says this, I was hoping for a more obvious solution. (laughs) There isn't anybody here who can't identify with it. He he wants to do what my friend wanted to do in Advent. He wants to go around John the Baptist. This is the obvious solution. This is the obvious solution. So, brothers and sisters, I give you John the Baptist, driven by the reality and the greatness of God, and he says, prepare and repent. And I want to leave you with this comfort and encouragement as you go into Christmas. There's so many ways that I could apply this, but I want to go back to something I've said previously that I want to continue to go back to because I love it so much. One of my heroes, Eugene Peterson, who died, taught at my alma mater in Vancouver, great writer on Christian theology and spirituality. When he died, his son preached his funeral and came out with something that his dad had told him his whole life, which was his dad's summary of the gospel, which none of us had ever heard because it was private between the two of them. I've shared it with you before. His father would say to him every day, God loves you, he is on your side, he is coming after you, he is relentless. God loves you, he is on your side, he is coming after you, he is relentless. And here's the image I want to leave you with. If you really take Advent and Christmas seriously, it means this. It means that the God who came is he who is coming, and the God who came is, is, is true of... Uh, in that second affirmation of Peterson. This is so important. He is on your side. My friend, um, an evangelist in the Church of England, Rico Tice, has this way of putting it. He says, Jesus is for us. The New Testament's image for this is, Jesus is our older brother. I want you to think about this for a second. The God who made heaven and earth, the God whom John announced, 
is the God who's with you and he's for you and he's your elder brother. I was once listening to a sermon by Mike Breen, who's an Anglican priest. You may know, you may not. And Mike Breen has one of those family situations where he has a sibling who's way older than him. His brother is many years his senior, and his brother was in the military, and Mike was getting beat up in his own neighborhood, and his brother came home from being deployed on a break, and he shared with him how he's getting beat up in his neighborhood. And so his, he and his brother worked up this scheme, and he went out to play in his neighborhood, and sure enough, the, the crumb buns came to beat him up. And right on cue, his brother came in full military garb on the side of the playground. And Mike, as Mike Breen tells the story, all of his friends that hated him and were beating him up all the time looked over at his brother, full military uniform, and they just stopped. <laughs> and then they just slinked away. And Mike Breen said, I never felt so good. I never felt so safe. Not only did he show up, and not only was he tall and older and clearly much stronger, but he had that full military regalia. And the message of Christmas is that Jesus, our older brother, that Jesus, this Jesus, is with us, and he's for us. So I give you John. Yeah, 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 he's weird, but he's real important. We need the reality of God, and we need the challenge of repentance, and we need to know that God is for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. Standing, let us confess our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance